Hey, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can open it. We're going to John chapter 20 this evening. Uh, if you are kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head with Matt to children's worship and have some fun doing that. The rest of us, we're going to continue on in John's gospel. Uh, let me give you a really quick map, and then, uh, then things are going to get heavy for a second, and then, and then we're going to continue on in the scripture. And so uh, I want to just, just kind of warn you, be preparing your hearts in that time as, as we start off in some, some kind, of, kind of weighty stuff as we work through the scriptures. Uh, first of all, though, let me, let me kind of give you the plan over the course of this summer. So one of the great joys of this past year uh, to, you know, uh, 14 months as COVID kind of changed the, the way and shape of really the world and how things have been done, uh, is we've, we've had to kind of learn and adjust and do some things differently as a church. Uh, one of the really exciting things in that is it begins to reimagine and push you to innovate and push you to consider what you really think is important and what things maybe were things that you just have always done. And so uh, we had a lot of things that were, uh, I don't know if we could change this, I don't know if we could do this. And then uh, in the moments that the last year have brought, it, it caused us to kind of really alter and change things a lot. Uh, there's challenges with that. There was turbulence with that. But by and large, I think God used that for the sake of his glory in some really great ways in the context of our church uh, in some really exciting ways for us. Uh, one of those being that we were able to do this on Saturday evenings. And so uh, it has been really a joy in that and certainly a different environment and feel than what Sunday mornings has historically felt like for us. Uh, and nonetheless, is the church of God gathered together, worshiping corporately in his name. And so we're going to suspend that uh, after this week. And then we're just going to continue to be, and I, I want to invite you to do that, continue to be in prayer with me as we sort of figure out what do we think that ought to look like for us as a church uh, later on this summer, entering the fall, entering the next year, uh, if that's something that we, we go come back to doing uh, or not. And, and we're trying to kind of weight and balance all of this variety of factors, right? There's a value to having the church all together. There's kind of strain on volunteers when you're trying to put things together multiple times. However, there's this benefit of schedule. There's this opportunity to sort of be together in smaller, more intimate environments. And so there's just some, some good things and some bad things with both of them. Uh, we've really kind of walked back and forth and are just, just sort of waiting to watch what God's going to do and let, let God kind of make that clear for us and our leadership levels. And so we want to invite you to come alongside and pray for that over the course of the summer uh, and, and just kind of see where God's going to lead us next. Uh, Along with that, I, I do want to, for those of you who are really planning focused, uh, which I know isn't all of you, but for those of you who want to know, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, if you're good at your Bible, you know that we've been walking in the Gospel of John for a good amount of time, and we're at the second to last chapter, which means we're, we're concluding this in the next couple of weeks, what comes next. Uh, and what we're going to really try to focus on over the course of this summer is what... Um, what practically the gospel has for us, right? And so we're going to uh, begin in, in the month of June a series that we're going to call Purpose uh, that really is going to focus on what, what do you do as a believer in Jesus? What, what does life look like? What is it meant to look like? Do we just kind of coast along or is there some type of purpose, some type of mission, some type of thing that we're encouraged to do. In some ways, we'll kind of summarize the calling from Jesus in John's gospel, but we'll kind of pull some other pieces of the scripture in 
just to remind ourselves of that, especially uh, I think it's wise for us to revisit that after this past year or so because so much of the things culturally had once been assumed and once been considered and once been normal have really just been challenged and changed in so many interesting ways over the course of the last year. And so we're going to spend some time in that. Uh, We're going to then spend some time from there working through what the church is and the Word of God uh, and why we kind of build our foundation for purpose and why we build our foundation for the church's mission on God's Word. And so I just kind of walk you through the summer in that way. And then when the fall starts, I think we're going to go to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and start a series there. And so that's sort of the the tendency plan for what it looks like uh, in your time of prayer and what we're kind of preparing for as a church in ministry and in preaching and teaching as we sort of center zoom in on our worship and uh, what that is going to all entail. And so if you're a planner, have that in mind. If you're not, uh, we'll see you next week and we'll start that process, right? Uh, let's, let's do this. Let's pray and chat as we get into John's gospel. Uh, we'll catch us up on where we left off last week and then we'll walk through the scripture tonight. God, I pray that you would prepare us and, and build in us a truth in the hope that is the resurrection from the dead and that such a hope would be something that we grasp so tightly, we care so deeply about uh, for the sake of the gospel going forth in fullness of our life and that we would be a people who exist in joy, in fullness, in life eternal uh, because of such hope. And so we pray that uh, you would continue to draw us to it even as we consider uh, the ups and downs, the heavy and the weighty nature of life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We... Um, We left off last week in one of the most significant moments in all of human history. Uh, We we actually finished in John 19, verse 30. Jesus himself says, it is finished. And it says he gave up his spirit. In other words, he died on a cross. And that was where we concluded last week. And we said uh, all along in and throughout that, that this was one of the most significant things that had ever happened in all of human history, that it brought with it a great deal of significance. Uh, And yet in it, it reminds us of, I think, one of, if not the hardest reality of the world that we live in, which is this, you And I, like everyone else, are going to die. Like I said, we're going to start a little weighty tonight. Uh, In fact, a couple years ago, we began a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books, Old Testament books written by Solomon, who is king of Israel during their most prosperous time. He is as successful a person who has ever lived and walked the face of the earth. He is rich. He's well respected. He has everything he could ever want in his life. He goes on to do significant things in all 
venues and areas of life. Some really good and amazing accomplishments, some really significant in the way that he sins uh, beyond the normal person could even imagine and just kind of continues to pursue throughout all of his life something that would fulfill, something that would bring meaningful fruit and feeling to his life that he felt was going to last. And then approaching the end of his life, he writes this book called Ecclesiastes that the theme of the book could be considered that all things are hevel, is the Hebrew word for it, futile or meaningless under the sun. That he looks upon this life and he goes, I just, nothing has substance. That we, we talked over and over again through that series that that word hevel, this meaningless, futile word, was the word that was used in Hebrew for cloud. And so all of life has this way of chasing after something that looks substance-based and when you're there you find that it's just lacking. And he finishes this book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 talking very, uh, very interestingly about what's going to happen to you at the end of your life. And so he begins to describe that your vision is going to leave you and that your memory is not going to be what it once was. And then your legs are going to start to fail you in ways that you didn't expect. And then your arms are going to shake like you wouldn't see. And then your hearing's going to begin to go and your hair's going to turn white if it stays at all. Please stay. Right? And then in all of this, eventually what's going to happen is you and your withered state are going to hate that you're even alive because life is so painful and bitter and broken and then you're going to die. And that's, I mean, that's the end of the book, right? And so in that, there's this kind of element of like, wow, wow, that's devastatingly depressing because not only is this unfortunate news, but we know it's universally to be true. In fact, the Bible doesn't hide from that at all. Over and over and over again, the writings about this world are going to bring us, draw us to attention, something that I'm convinced the world has tried more and more and more each passing day, each passing year, to ignore and pretend like it's not real until they have to interact with it. And that's this, that you are going to die no matter how many vegetables you eat, no matter how much you work out, no matter how hard you try to delay the inevitable, it's going to happen. Now I'm saying you can eat vegetables, it's a good thing, but Job said it this way, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil and like a flower he comes forth and withers and he flees like a shadow and he does not remain. You're going to die and generations later like a shadow, your memory, your legacy will be gone. Samuel said it this way, uh, for we will surely die and we're like water spilled on the ground which can't be gathered up again. David in Psalms says, What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? No. Moses said it this way in Psalm 90, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Even in the best of situations, and even in the most years, it'll just be a moment passing by. In the New Testament, James said it this way, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor, a mist, that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The author of Hebrews says, And insomuch as it is appointed for men, 
to die once, and after this comes judgment. Paul in Romans said, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, when Adam begins in original sin, he says, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the grace, the great plight of humanity, that no matter how hard you try, it's coming for you. And if you've lived a while, let me even just personalize it a little bit, because this last year has, has really brought this to fruition as um, we had one of the practical things happen over this past year in all of COVID uh, realities is a lot of the other places in the community that would host funerals I had their facilities closed for one reason or another and so uh, I did over this past year 15 20 different funeral services for young people old people and everywhere in between and stood and looked in the eyes of children and spouses and parents and grandchildren who sat in these chairs knowing that the people they loved died. And if they lived long enough, they would see more and more and more of it. And if they don't, there would be some sitting in those very seats watching them. And so all of this weight wrapped up in the fact that Jesus, calling his disciples throughout the Gospel of John, has said over and over and over again that he was the way, not to death, but the way to life. In fact, we said the major theme in John's Gospel, the one thing that he says above all, I want you to know, is that you were meant to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing, you have life in his name. No death, life in his name. Over and over and over again, Jesus says this about himself, and that is what we're meant to believe and follow. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting life, that you would have life. John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me, get this, will never die. Do you believe this? Now, here's what's so fascinating about this. We left off last week with Jesus going, it is finished. And then the Bible says something crazy. He dies. And imagine, imagine you are his disciples who have already experienced in the last two days some of the worst, most turbulent, most confusing days of your life. Jesus said, I'm going somewhere and you can't come anymore after I've followed you everywhere for three years. Now you're going to leave us. And then in that turmoil, he is arrested, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's scourged, he's put on this, this fake Banana Republic trial, all of this, right? And they stand afar and they watch the one who said, if you believe in me, you follow me and you will have life. And he dies. And, and then we, we said, this is the greatest news in all of history. Right? Kind of a disconnect there. Amen? 
So let's get to where that all comes back together. Because outside of that, we do not have real hope in this unless John 20 and John 21 are true. And so here's, here's my goal for tonight. John 20, John 21 describe the resurrection of Jesus. Three days later, the Savior of the world dies for us and is raised again. And so out of this, all hope, all of Christianity depends upon this as true. And so I just want to read it with you. We're going to do very similar to what we did last week. We're going to read, kind of describe what's going on, fill in some pieces, add some things in that we, we need to make sure that we're understanding about it. And then I just want to close with two things that we ought to conclude out of the resurrection of Jesus. One, that it is real, that it's true, that it's historically accurate. And so we don't think of this as a metaphor or a fairy tale, but rather that this is real history. And two, why that matters more than any other truth in the history of all the world. All right, so grab your Bibles, John chapter 20. Go along with me as we watch John describe what happens following the death of Jesus. Finished out in John 19, Jesus says, it is finished. He bows his head. He gave up his spirit. The verses that follow describe that the Jewish leaders in their hypocrisy who have put him on the cross want to get him and the other two guys down off of the cross later that day before the evening comes because it's a Sabbath day and in particular it's the Passover Sabbath day and so it's of real significance religiously and frankly what they don't want to see is some guys crucified as they enter into their lovely city on an important religious holiday and so they say let's break those guys legs so that they all die faster on the cross so that we can kind of get them down and get the city cleaned up to be presentable for this religious holiday that we have it's almost sickening you think about that level of hypocrisy but as they do they come across Jesus and they find that he has already died and so they don't break his legs they stick a spear into his side blood and water flows out they take him off of the cross there's a man named Joseph of Arimathea who is a particular wealth and power and influence in the society along with a guy named Nicodemus who once came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3 and they lay him in a tomb in a garden nearby that has never been used and they bring some hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes and spices to prepare his body for burial and yet as the day gets late and Passover and Sabbath day approaches they can't really Really kind of take care of everything they need to take care of at that moment. And so they lay him in the tomb, they wrap him in cloths, they put the stuff there, they roll a stone over the tomb, and they head off to mourn the worst night of their life as the Passover Sabbath comes. All day Friday, all day Saturday, and then in John 20 it picks up early Sunday morning. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. 
And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this gospel account, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid them. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going together to the tomb. And the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and he entered the tomb and saw the linen wrappings linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been laid on his head and not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up and put in a place by itself. And so the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. So let's, let's kind of mention what's going on. Mary Magdalene, uh, the Bible through other gospel accounts tells us she's probably not by herself. There's a couple other ladies that who have come. They are bringing some spices. So uh, I don't know how else to describe this in like tact. So I'm just going to like straightforward tell you. We, they just didn't embalm bodies back then. So uh, the corpse rotted and smelled bad by day three. Right? Uh, in fact, there's kind of a necessity to sort of rush to get Jesus into a tomb before the Passover because uh, it's a really horrifying idea that not only would he die, but that in his death he would then begin to rot away and smell, uh, perhaps be picked apart by birds or whatever it might be in this time. And so not only that, the way that they would treat this or approach this was they bring a lot of spices to kind of mask and disguise such a scent. And so Mary comes, she's going to kind of lay these spices and finish up what had been curtailed before the Sabbath day. And so she's there early in the morning. The sun hasn't risen yet. It's still dark. And upon arriving, she sees the tombstone rolled away. And so she doesn't know what to do. She is in this kind of chaos and uh, terror and fear, right? Thinking that somebody had come and stole the body of Jesus. Uh, runs back to John and to Peter and says, they took him, right? And, and the two disciples who we just said were probably dealing with some of the worst moments and emotions of their life, right? Their Savior is gone. The person who told them, believe in me and you'll never die, died himself. And so they take off running to the tomb. Now, one of the things that's interesting, right, is in these verses you see, uh, I mentioned this to you weeks and weeks ago, and so we'll see if you kind of remember this, but you see these little asterisks, right? And if you have a version of the Bible that has those, you'll notice that they're all noted next to a past tense verb. The reason for that is, is when Bible translators translate the Bible, they want to translate it into correct English grammar. And so they say that this tomb was stone, was rolled away from the, from the tomb, that John and Peter, they ran to the tomb to see and they looked in, right? Because this is all happening in the past, past tense account. However, the reason there's asterisks is because John, when he originally writes this, he writes this in present tense. Not past tense, present tense. Because here's, here's what's happening to him. 
This is as real and as vivid as an, and important of a memory as anything in the history of his entire life as well as the world. And so he can see it, feel it, taste it, smell it like it was yesterday. And so as he describes it, he's going, I'm running to the tomb and Peter's running to the tomb. And I get there and I look into the tomb and I can see the wrappings. I don't go in yet, I just look in there, right? And then as I'm looking, Peter, who's right behind me, he catches up and he's not as kind of like timid as I am. Uh, he's not worried about the smell. He's not worried about the smell. He just runs right into the tomb and he gets in there and as he's in there, He's looking at the stuff, and I'm like, Peter, I don't know if you should be in there. But then he's like, there's no body in here. So I get in there, and I'm kind of looking at This is my paraphrase, okay, right? This is not a real translation. Just know that. But this is what he's saying, right? Like you can almost feel the excitement as he describes it. We're looking. The face, clap, the, the face cloth is like off. It's sitting on the ground. Like, and now, and now some things are starting to connect. Some, some dots are starting to come together. Some things that I once wasn't sure about, for as of yet, they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. But now, and, and you can just taste it in verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. This kind of mix of confusion and, and anxiousness hope perhaps for the first time and trying to figure out like what's what's happened is something different about this where did this Jesus go did his body get stolen what what's going on with this but but he's not here and and so maybe maybe something's different about all of this Scripture goes on. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb and weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, and where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. It's a highly exalted teacher, a term of more reverence than rabbi. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. So apparently she's gone and grabbed him and is hugging him. And he says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my, my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So just pause there and just let me point out a couple more things and then uh, we'll, we'll keep reading along. But first of all is this. Uh, the first person that the resurrected Jesus appears to is a woman named Mary Magdalene. This is only the second time she's mentioned by name in Scripture. What we know about her up to this point is that she was called by Jesus after being healed by Jesus and cast out of her was seven demons. I'm just going to say it like this. this. It's not the most compelling and impressive of people to begin the testimony of your resurrection. Amen? Like, you get what I'm saying? 
Uh, in fact, it's not the first time Jesus has done this. If you remember, again, back in the Gospel of John, the first person that Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah to happens to be a woman who was not even a Jew, but rather a Samaritan who was living with a man who was not her husband after being married five times. And so now you have this kind of ongoing theme in the ministry of Christ that just over and over and over again, now I want you to just know this because I think this bears such an encouraging significance for us is that Jesus consistently is calling, appointing to special and significant position and using the people who the world looked at and thought were the least significant people that you could imagine. Here, here's the thing. That ought to be great news for you and I. That, that Jesus doesn't look upon us and go, those who have the best accolades, those who are the most well-kept, those who are the smartest, those who have made the best decisions, those who are the most talented, those who have the most to offer in their own self-righteousness. No, He looks upon people in their lowly state and through them works so that through them the glory would not extend to them but would extend to God. And so in the same way, you and I get to have an opportunity to be used by the Lord, not because we're great, but because He is. And then the second thing, as He speaks to her, note this in verse 17. He says, stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to my Father, but I go to my brethren, my brothers. That's the first time He's called them that. And then He says, and I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Jesus, in this simple verse, identifies to her for the first time the work that on the cross was finished, was completed, was that now you and I, the glory that God the Father had given to Jesus, He has given to us. The glory of salvation, the glory of eternal life, the glory that you will never die, made you not just His disciples, but His brethren, not just his father, but your father. The way that Romans describes it is that you are heirs of God, children of God, and co-heirs with Christ. That through his work on the cross, he reconciled all things to himself, brought you into the fold, made you a brother or sister in the way that you and I are now declared righteous before God if we have faith in Christ. And so Mary in her excitement goes to the disciples and the Bible continues on this way. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, or the, the uh, word there in Greek could also mean locked, right? They're just kind of held up in an upper room where the disciples were. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now let me just pause for a second. Here's, here's what's going on. The disciples have kind of like put themselves, locked themselves, got stuck into a tiny little room together, like trying to sort of hide out from the Jewish leaders who had crucified the one that they followed. And so then kind of out of this, they're, so they're trying to figure out like, what do we do next? 
We've just heard that the tomb is empty. That probably puts us even more in the crosshairs because the accusation that these same Jewish leaders are going to give later is that those disciples stole his body. And yet in all of this, as the doors are shut, as they're locked together, Jesus shows up in the room without using the door, right? Like, I don't know if that's some like Harry Potter stuff or what. He's just there, right? And, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you, which makes sense because I think I'd be pretty freaked out. Amen? Right? Like, whoa, hang on a second. And in this, it says, he shows them both his hands and his sides, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so he said again to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That in this, the peace of God now rests upon them because the finished work of Jesus on the cross and risen again. And then he says, now out of this, I send you. And then it says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now let me, let me just kind of really quickly give you a, a brief summation of a couple things about this because I think this is like you read that and you go, that's weird and confusing and I don't know if I've ever heard that before. Uh, here's, here's what he does. He breathes on them to symbolize receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, they don't receive the Holy Spirit right then. Uh, it's actually about 40 days later, the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit falls upon them. So what is he doing? Well, I think, I think what we would say is that Jesus is giving them in significance a recognition of the finished work of the cross. And so out of this significant, the Holy Spirit coming from the breath of Jesus is going to be on them. And so it's this kind of imagery. I'll give you an example of where this, where this works in the scripture. Uh, book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet is told by God to grab a jar. This is Jeremiah 19. And he goes and he says, you take this jar and you go and you bring the leaders of Israel out to this barren land and you hold up this jar and you begin to preach about how they don't obey me. And then at the end, when they're, not listen, when they're listening to me say, you don't obey me, you break the jar. He says, and then you tell them, that's going to be you, right? Like, so, so consistently throughout the Bible, that's not nice. I just, I was reading that this week. I thought, well, there's a good example of it, right? Consistently throughout the scripture, God's going to use imagery to bring forth what he's about to do. And so Jesus, who has told them again and again, I'm going to leave and a helper's going to come, breathes on them and says, take the peace of God and know that the Holy Spirit is coming and out of this, I'm sending you. Now he's going to describe to them a little while later that they should wait and then the Holy Spirit's actually going to come on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and that's a different sermon for a different day. But in this, he looks at them this way and then he says, uh, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you retain sins, they're retained. Now the, the thing that I think academically is important for some of you to hear is that verse got really manipulated over the centuries to think that some human being is allowed to decide what sins can be forgiven and what sins can't be forgiven. That's not what he's saying here. What he's recognizing is those who believe in Christ, those who are placing their faith in him as a part of the church, receive the forgiveness of Christ. And so you welcome them into the church. Those who reject Christ don't. And so you allow their sin to remain on them as they have not received the life that is in Christ. And so out of this, you see kind of the gospel message moving into the, the 
life and ministry of Jesus to the resurrected Jesus and the work of the church. So uh, what continues on is Thomas, who wasn't there the first time, shows up. He has this interaction where he goes, I'm not doing anything unless I actually stick my hands in his hands and his side. And uh, Jesus gives him and grants him that, but says, those who believe when they haven't seen me are blessed, even though you believe because you have seen and felt. And so out of all of this, we uh, see John chapter 20, John describing Jesus, the third day, risen again. Here's, here's where I want to just finish. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? What's the importance of all of this? Because, because not only this has he described, but the whole of Christianity rests on this. This is the core tenet message of Christianity. It's not be a good person. It's not a list of rules. It's not primarily the Ten Commandments first. It's not be loving or good to your neighbor first. It's not do this or do that. It's not come to church. It's not give money. It's not pray a certain amount of time. It's not read something. It is believe in Jesus, crucified and resurrected. Paul said it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. And then he's going to go on to describe, this is what's the most important, the gospel message. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is it. All of the rest of all of human history depends on this real, true, and historical. And so I, so I want to just mention two things. First of all, the Bible is consistently attesting to this as true and history, not metaphor or allegory, right? And so, so like, this is not some imagery, and this is not like the disciples hallucinating, and this is not Jesus didn't really die, and this is not Jesus was just a ghost or a spirit. That's the first thing that they think, and he consistently showing them, reminding them. Paul's going to go on in that same passage to note that Jesus appears to some 500 people at one time, and most of them are still alive, so you go ask them if they really saw this Jesus. And over the years that follow this, the consistent objection and argument against this is that the disciples who die for this must have stolen his body, and yet in this they're willing to not recant to the point of death, some of them even death on the same crosses like Jesus died. So in this, all throughout human history, as the time goes on, both in the first century and 2,000 years later today, the consistent kind of critique of Christianity is that the resurrection isn't true. And yet, among all of those critiques, you find nothing that holds any weight, any substance, or any value. And, and I would just encourage you, you talk to somebody who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe in Christianity— Challenge them to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what alternative is possibly true because there are none. So, so here's the first thing. It's real and it happened. And so some six years later as John's writing near the end of his life, he's describing with such vivid detail this very event because he recognizes it as the consequential life-altering truth that proves the gospel message that proves that God sent His Son, Jesus, to die to take the penalty of your sin and mine. Now, here's, here's the second thing. There's a lot of things that are true 
that don't really matter. So, so what makes this so significant? Why, why does this matter? Well, here's how Paul, the apostle, surmises this in 1 Corinthians. And I, I just want to read this, kind of close on this very idea. He says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if, if Christ has not been raised, so if, if Jesus if this, John 20, isn't real, isn't true, if John 19 is the end of the story, if, if Jesus is crucified after all of this, you believe in me and you will have life and you will never experience death, you have no hope. Here's what he goes on to say. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God. I'm a liar. He's a liar because we testified that God had raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So the resurrection isn't real. I'm a liar. I'm, I'm not telling you the truth. Your faith is worthless. And if Christ had not been raised, you are still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. You're gone. There is no eternal life. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men, of all people, most to be pitied. But the very next verse, Paul says this, but Christ has been raised. In fact, in Acts 17, Paul's going to say that this was the reason that Christ was raised. Because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And then he says this, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Here's why the resurrection is the most significant event in all of human history. Here's why all of Christianity hangs upon John 20 and John 21. Because if Christ has not been raised, we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. His death on the cross accomplishes our justification, our reconciliation to God, and His resurrection proves it to be true. That you and I will experience if we live long enough and if he doesn't return, you're going to experience that same taste of death that Solomon describes, that Moses and David and Samuel describe, that Job describes, that James describes, that you and I are going to not make it out of this life alive and yet, and yet it is not futile, it is not hevel, we have hope. Why? Because Christ has been raised. And because his promise to you is though you will experience that death, in him you will never die. But that you will have eternal life. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people of great hope people who are deeply convinced of the central truth of Christianity that you that you died for us that you were taken off of a cross and laid into a tomb and that on the third day 
arriving at the tomb, the stone was rolled away. The wrappings laid down. You were not there. That you appeared to Mary and to the eleven and to more than 500 at one time that you gave them peace, gave us peace before God. That though we stand in our sin, condemned in the judgment of God, knowing that he is appointed a day where he will judge all men, me included, all of these who sit with me here today included, and all of us will be found not righteous, not up to his standard, that you, God, that through Jesus, you pardon our sin. Through his death on the cross, you declare us not guilty. And that we can have life eternal with you, resting on this, knowing this to be true, placing all of our faith and all of our hope in this, because you furnished the proof by raising Jesus from the dead that Christ has been raised. And so I pray that uh, we would renew or, or maybe for the first time that we would place our faith, that we would believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the one who was resurrected, and in that, that we have life and life eternal. And that's something to rejoice over. We pray it in the name of Jesus.